So uh, how, many, how many wives are here? How many wives? You're married, you have a husband, all right? Sounds like a few confused. Um, imagine with me, dream with me, wives, of a world where your husband never, ever takes you for granted. Where every night there's like a 25, 30, 45 minute massage. Every day around 11 a.m. you get 16 dozen roses. Every, every hour on the hour the, the text is sent. You're the, you're the flower of my heart, honey. You're the apple of my eye. I don't even know. Other phrases that are loving. Seriously, imagine a world where uh, you couldn't be taken for granted, wives. Um, Dream with me here. Imagine a world where we never took creation for granted. Think about it. Like, think about what that would look like. How differently the road trips would be. Right? Like, dad's pulling over every three minutes. Kids, look at this blade of grass, you know? It is, it is majestic. It's perfectly shaped and formed, you know. And, and then they would drive down a few minutes later. Look at the cirrus clouds, kids. This reminds us of the glory of the Lord. Seriously, like imagine that. There's so much of creation that uh, goes unnoticed. Last night my family and I, we were, um, we were down on the river, uh, kind of down towards, I forget what the park is, but it's right by the loft there on 3rd Street. And uh, we're sitting up there. And it's a really pretty night. That area of the river isn't the most beautiful. And, uh, and Maddox, uh, Maddox goes, this is so beautiful. And Heidi's like, no, it's not. Like, the river's dirty, you know. And, but but I, I love, the, I love the, the innocence of a child. Like, he just, beautiful night. He sees a river. He sees clouds. And it was, it was beautiful to him. Imagine a world where we never took uh, food for granted. You know what I'm saying? I mean, literally, whatever was put before you, right? And, and certainly uh, now, husbands, maybe you can, um, you know, share some of your encouraging words to your wives. But my guess is there's probably been a few meals that either you or your wife have cooked or you've been over at someone's house and they're doing gluten-free and you don't even know what gluten is, right? And they, they put, you know, some kind of organic food before you and you're thinking in your mind, uh, I've never thought this ever, um, <laughs> but you're thinking in your mind, like, seriously, like, what happened just to pizza, you know? Where, where, did, the, where did the meat and potatoes go? Um, it's a dream, isn't it? The kind of world where you never took anything for granted. Where um, gratitude was so normal. Thankfulness was so normal. Uh, it wasn't just in our rhetoric. It was just pouring out of our heart. Um, I get really stirred up. Right now, just thinking about it, how differently our worship would be, uh, how more encouraging our conversations would be. We have a lot to um, grumble about, it seems, but when you stop taking the little things for granted, when you start seeing your whole life in this perspective of gratitude, um, it changes everything. It changes your outlook um, on your day-to-day, it changes how you talk to people, how you hear what people are saying. Now, this is, um, God has done, like, an, an insane work in showing me something from the text, and I want to bring you into it, okay? 
This is one of our texts, our last verse actually from last week. But the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed, verse 15 says, you were called in one body, and the scripture ends, and be thankful. Now I want to add the two verses to tonight, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, seriously, if you've spent any time in the church community, this, these verses have certainly been taught, have uh, been preached, have been encouraged. You maybe have a bumper sticker with these on it. But can you step back? Are you seeing what I saw this week now in light of our intro? Are you seeing it? Look at this. In the section about what it means to be a new creation, made alive in Christ is how the ESV subtitles it. Look at this. At the end of this section, next slide, all three of these verses, thankfulness, gratitude, is a reoccurring, not just theme, but it seems like dominating point. And these verses here at the end, as he's already told us to put off and then to put on, if you've been journeying with us, these are kind of his culminating texts. So now all of a sudden, written from a jail cell to a small church, this man in Paul, inspired by the Spirit, written certainly from the Lord, is making sure his readers understand how important gratitude really is. Let's say it this way in light of our journey so far in Colossians. The old man is characterized by deservedness and the new man is to be dominated by gratitude. The old man thought he deserved something. The new man knows he doesn't deserve anything. The old man walked around privileged. The new man walks around under grace. The old man thought that every single person around him should give him something or owes him something. And the new man in humility says, no, 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 I don't deserve a single thing, but God has been gracious. You guys see the despairing difference, right? Now, I've never seen this in these three verses before. It's always kind of been, you know, a collection of things and certainly uh, the let the word of Christ dwell in you. That's been always powerful and whatever you do in word or deed, like, those are powerful texts. But I'm here to contend with you tonight, the main theme of the end of this section in Colossians 3 is gratitude. Now, certainly it's wrapped with some other teaching. We're going to journey through all that tonight. So, all that said, why don't you guys open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Man, a powerful night, a great opportunity for us tonight to not just journey uh, through some important text, but uh, respond in a um, very important way tonight. So here we go. Let's start here in uh, this verse that we've already read. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, when you hear the word dwell, what do you think of? Home, right? Come on. Yeah, like staying somewhere. You, you, you think of... Uh, maybe not the Holiday Inn, but you think of, you know, the, the, the dwelling place that you exist in. So uh, imagine the word home. Let the word of Christ make home in you. Where it's not a, a visitor. Where it's not a stranger. Where it's welcomed in. Where it's not just a welcome mat, right? But the, the door is open. And the moment the bell rings, uh, even as Jesus describes in the parable, like uh, the person of the house is waiting there. The, the word has made such refuge in you. 
that it feels natural. So I think we take a few different approaches in terms of dwelling. So let's take this theme and say it this way. Next uh, slide. In terms of dwelling, the word, number one, some of you view the word as only living in others. So in your approach to to the word and your understanding of the word, some of you believe that it just lives in others, that it dwells in others but not you. Man, that person, they, they seem so connected with the word. They pray the word. They speak the word. When we talk together, the word just keeps coming out of their mouth. Some of you in Christ, that's how you view the word. It's only in others. It's like you're missing out. Uh, others of you uh, see it this way. In terms of the word, you, you think it's like a slumber party. Like the dwelling is like a slumber party. It's, it's taken from the thought of a parent. Like the good thing about a slumber party is it only lasts one night. Okay? It's like a rite of passage as a parent when your kids get to the age when you can start having slumber parties, right? And thankfully, at the age my kids are, slumber parties means pretty much that they're just going to stay up till 10 or 10.30. But I know the day's coming, right? And some of you have been to slumber parties when, man, when you were 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, like, if you got past midnight, it was a, it was a victory, right? But some of you see the word, are experiencing the word, uh, just like the dwelling is a is a one overnight kind of thing, once in a while, or, or we could say it better, in corporate settings. You come to the slumber party here in a gathering or wherever it is that you journey with normally, okay, you bring your Bible or you bring your phone, you bring a sleeping bag, a nice pillow, you hear the word and it fills you up for the rest of the week. That's not the point of God's word, but that's how many of you approach it, right? This is your Christian slumber party. Okay, some of you have the Return of the Jedi uh, sleeping bag, others of you a Barbie, but you're, you're approaching it as that, right? Now, some, other, uh, uh, so, some more of you take one step further, maybe, and then you add this in number three. It, it's like a weekend in a tent. So it's, it's a little bit more than an overnight. It's, it's the, the dwelling of the word in me is, is like sleeping in a tent, okay? I'm, I'm not at all a camper. I've talked about this over and over and over. The Boy Scouts would have failed me, okay? The Boy Scouts hate me, all right, because I, I even talk sometimes uh, uh, downward towards camping. Any of you actually like to camp, okay? Uh, maybe, we should do a, um, maybe we should do a Matthias camping trip sometime. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We're never, ever going to do that. It's not going to happen. There will never be a church-sponsored camping trip. I'm telling you that right now. You guys can do it amongst yourselves as much as you want. In Ecuador, that's what we do. But, but some of you, like, you approach the word that way, right? Like a, a string a few days together where the word seems to make refuge. I get a little bit excited about it. It starts to nourish me. I start to be nurtured by it. And so I wake up the next morning, fueled again, give it 24 or 48 hours, and all of a sudden, I've lost my taste for it again. I, I've let life start living me, the grind of my schedule, the chaos of my burdens. It, it takes away my fuel for the word. That's where some of you are at. Lost to others, uh, number four is your reality. It's like an old farmhouse. Uh, I thought of a farmhouse because um, I thought of my grandfather's farm where I uh, grew up at. Super old home. Uh, the foundation was sure. I actually texted uh, my dad and my uncle today trying to find the address so I could Google Earth it. And sure enough, uh, this was my grandfather's farm. 
uh, growing up. It's hard to see, but um, there's the house kind of covered by trees. As I, like, watched this, it brought back all kinds of memories. If I could count the number of scrapes that I've had from that gravel right there, it would be unbelievable. I have, like, scars over my legs from it. But some of you, the word is, um, is actually living and active. Uh, just like an old house that has character and, and it has been there for a long time. The word has made refuge in you. Uh, some of you come in here uh, believing that without it that you'll die. Uh, you believe things that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You actually breathe it. Not in a prideful way, but in a humble way, you, you live solely by God's word. You wake up thinking about it, you go to sleep uh, imagining about it and praying through it. Uh, throughout the day, it's, it's constantly being brought up. Some of you are in this camp and you know how beautiful it can be, how beautiful it is. And what the scripture says is that we're to let that happen. Don't put any barriers or blockades. Let the word of Christ make refuge, set up camp for the long haul in you. Now the word is written on our hearts, the scripture says. But apparently by Paul's commendation, the the text implies that there are some people that are struggling. And certainly that's the case in this room. Of those four, where do you find yourself? Uh, It's only in others. The other person is really fired up about it. Maybe the one night... uh, corporate gathering kind of mentality or the few stringing a few days together or others, man, it's just in you. Um, it's beautiful when you start processing through that. So I want to help you. Next slide. Um, I want to help ask some questions tonight with how you can gauge right now your views of the scripture. I'm super passionate about this because uh, I say it all the time, the two greatest um, errors or challenges in Christendom today is reading the scripture in prayer, which I think you would agree with me are two of the most vital to our relationship with the Lord, okay? So I I just want you to ask yourself these questions. First, what value do do you believe the word adds to your daily life? Now, the rubber starts to meet the road when you have to answer the question with your actions and not your words. Because many of us walking in here would say, the word drives my life, Um, I do believe it's living and active, active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and yet it's been several days since the Word of God fed you, since the Word of God taught you, right? What value do you think it is? It's kind of like everything or nothing. Like, to me, the Word has no in-between. Like, it's either a scholarly a book, a textbook maybe, or something that you don't believe, or it really is the words of life. What value do you think it adds daily, hourly, by the minute? Next question. When you read God's word, what are you trying to get out of it? Uh, Every single time I teach a new believer or old believer who's struggling to study God's word, uh, we teach here a massive shift in perspective. I was taught growing up that you read uh, God's word to ask yourself solely, what does this mean for me? And then you turn to chapters like Ezekiel chapter 2, and you're wondering, I'm not so sure. Why do you see chapters that are a little bit difficult or um, hard to understand? And so when you're always asking yourself, what does this uh, mean for me? How do I contextualize this first? And that's your sole basis for reading the word. It gets very frustrating. 
Because you read certain verses and you're just like, I don't think that has any application for me. But when we teach here and as I teach my children to read God's word, to learn about God, to study his character, to awe his person, that every passage, every word, red letter and black letter alike is about the Lord Jesus, is pointing to the Lord, uh, Lord Jesus, or pointing back to the Lord Jesus. Now all of a sudden, the word doesn't become a book that is meant just to uh, uh, supply us with the ideals of life. It's teaching us about the God that we serve and worship. And certainly then that has implications on our life. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I want to encourage you right now, for those of you that have been struggling or, or the, the book is on the shelf collecting dust because you opened up to Revelation and you got frustrated by chapter 2 because you wondered if the, you know, if, the, if, the, if the flies were helicopters, you know, and you were waiting for Kirk Cameron to pop out in like a pop-out picture or something. Um, maybe, maybe all of a sudden the Bible can be about God's character and not about you. Let me say it this way. Maybe your theology and your doctrine would infiltrate your view of God's word instead of you dictating what you think God's word should be. Last thing on this point. Have a whole lot of people that can take a whole lot of verses and make them say a whole lot of things. But the beauty when you read the scripture to gain understanding of the character of God is all of a sudden you see this systematic story. And you don't just have to start in a Bible reading plan from Genesis and go to Revelation. That systematic story is in the book of Matthew. The systematic story has been in the letter to Colossae. And on and on and on. So if you're struggling tonight, be encouraged. Maybe open up uh, to the gospel of Luke. Read slow and steady. And ask yourself, what is the scripture saying uh, about the Lord? Okay? And finally, number three, some questions to... Uh, evaluate your current view of the word. What doubts do you have about the word's validity? I, I, I want to exist in a community that can be honest about that. Right? Uh, some of you have voiced doubts in past experience and you've been lashed. Right? What You, you don't believe that piece about the Bible. Right? And, and then, you know, the small group or the person or the leader like brought you up and they, you know, they tied you to the tree post. And with words, they berated your Christianity. Uh, what if we existed in a community that could say, man, I'm struggling. I want to believe holistically in God's word, but quite honestly, where my heart is today, I'm struggling to believe that I'm a son and a daughter, and, and if a son, then an heir. I'm struggling with my identity. I hear the words, and I see the words on a page, but in my ear, all I hear is accusations and lies. How many of you are there, huh? How many of you open up to the creation story and uh, as I, I, bought, I bought a National Geographic, you know, with cool pictures and stuff for my daughter and I to read together. So we're reading it like two weeks ago. National Geographic, right? I mean, you, 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 I, mean like, I, I remember my grandfather looking at National Geographic, right? And we open up to the creation story. And in all boldness, in National Geographic, okay, it says, and the world was created with a massive bang, you know? And I'm, I'm like, uh, and, and Avery like looks at me, she's like, that, this, is, this is hogwash, you know? I mean, she's like, what kind of <laughs> hotel is this, you know? And I appreciated that about my daughter. Um, but I wonder how many of you struggle with that. Like, I don't know if, you know, the, 
I don't know if we should take literally the creation story. I'm not sure if we can wrestle with that. Here's what I found. Uh, often those doubts uh, infiltrate our lives when we got frustrated with God's word and then we tabled the scripture. And then we started talking a lot about our doubt and we didn't allow our doubt to drive us to learn more about the character of God. We, we allowed our doubt, listen, to dictate our rhetoric. So then we communicated a lot, but the word got dusty. In other words, um, uh, for those of you tonight that are struggling with doubt, uh, my encouragement, uh, instead of uh, pulling up your bootstraps or fighting through it, would be to ask God to increase your faith and that he would drive you again to the text and that as you see the beauty of the text through your struggle, through your doubt, through passages that you know are, are nails, that he would just come around your heart and encourage you and show you systematically about how the story is about him and how he's written and how he's ordained it and how he's building and how he's setting the stage for his glory. What starts happening is, is as your life is, is made a refuge, is made a home for the word, all of a sudden what I've experienced in my life is the doubts that at one time felt so gripping all of a sudden fade away in the face of a glorious God. But what I see happening a lot of times, we get doubtful, and then all of a sudden we want to conversate, and the word stays on the table. I want to challenge you, church, the word should, uh, our doubt should drive us to the word. Our doubt should fuel our study. Our struggles should amplify our prayer. Okay, the reality is those in this room, by percentages, would say a vast majority of you are really, really struggling to daily read it. And I've told you this before, but if Peter were here right now, I think he would cuss. In, you know, in Greek or something, but I think he would say, like, I think, I think this is what, how he would say. And he would say it in love. But don't you picture Peter being a little bit crusty, being a little bit bold, you know? Fisherman, he's got, you know, he's, he's had some hooks in his hand. I don't even know if that's what fishermen do. I'm no, I don't fish. But he's got some scars, right? And I, I think he would say things like, hold on a second. So, so you're telling me you have the book written by the God who is telling you about who he is, who, and again, if I were Peter, who I've seen, I've heard the teachings, I've watched the miracles, and listen, I've doubted too. But I saw the risen Christ. You're telling me he's gifted you with this book so that you can let it dwell in your heart, and yet you've said, because you need more sleep, that somehow it's better to snooze than to feast on God's word. Like all of a sudden things start to get put in perspective, right? The things that we choose to let dictate our life over the word of God, it really gets silly, doesn't it? Come on. And I'm speaking for myself. Man, it's going to be a busy day tomorrow. Mm. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get to that tonight. How many of you guys have said that yesterday? Right? And then parents especially, like you put the kids down, you get to about 8.30, like, woo. Man, that word will taste good in the morning, right? But for now, I'm sure the Lord would want me to rest and sleep, right? Have you ever said that one before? I know God just wants me to rest, right? And then you wake up the next day, and again, pretty soon you find yourself waiting on the next corporate gathering to feed you. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, how does this verse keep going? Check this out as we keep going in verse 16. I see this as a, because the word is richly dwelling in you, then it means some things. There's a few different ways to look at this passage, and none of them, I think, are in error. Certainly some liberty here, but work with me through this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Look at this. Teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. Hello. Isn't it interesting that we go for wisdom to people, and sometimes we have no idea what their daily rhythm of Scripture reading looks like? Right? We go to a person because they're our friend, and sometimes because we want to hear the easy answer, and we're like, look, I have this major life decision. Our whole family is either going to stay here or we're going to move to California, you know, plant a church, do something crazy for the gospel. So what do you say? And we like put our whole life in front of someone who at times has not been prayed up, hasn't read the scripture in weeks. But then they feel the pressure to like blab something. Well, you know, in Matthew chapter 29, it says that, hold on a second, is there a Matthew 29? Anyway, it was like around there. Matthew 27, I think Jesus, when he was dying, said it is finished. So maybe you're finished here and you need to go on to California. And you're like, listen, oh yeah, that's a good word. He did say it is finished on the cross. I'm sure the implication of that is that my time here is done and I need to move on, right? It's totally different when we give wisdom that comes from the word. My friends, the church, the body of Christ can celebrate so much when the wisdom that dominates our conversation is from God's word and not Christian hearsay. But if it's not dwelling in us, how can we give wisdom based on the word? We're reaching for straws. We're grabbing for ideas. Those of you in disciple relationships, you feel the pressure because someone is looking at you for direction and guidance to give them direction and guidance when at times, again, it's been a while for you. Don't you understand? When it's been a while for you, it's so quickly to get disillusioned in wisdom. If you're looking for wisdom, look, a good place to go first is to the Lord. Scripture says in James chapter 1, he gives generously to all without finding fault. Take that one to the bank. And then if you want some human encouragement, let the body of Christ play a part, as this text implies. Then go to someone that you know for sure is in God's word, not for their own gain or profit, but to glorify the Lord. Okay? So teaching is one thing. Admonishing, now that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, we don't do so well with admonishing. Just the word kind of sounds naughty, doesn't it? Like admonishing, that sounds tricky. Like, what does it mean to admonish? What it means to admonish is to warn. Think about a body of Christ that was able to consistently warn one another based on God's word. Right? I was sitting with a dear brother today. Dear brother. I mean, this dude is fired up about the Lord. Enjoying our conversation, enjoying our time. And I got to step in into something that I heard about his relationship, and I just got to encourage him, admonish him, warn him. Hey, brother, l- listen, this isn't my, like, this is from the, I just want you to hear this, okay? If you rest in your own device, in your own pursuits, and we, it, the conversation was beautiful because it was based on the word. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to be warned by brothers and sisters in Christ if it's based on the word? Are you willing to be warned? 
I don't hear a resounding yes. I don't see a bunch of nodding heads. Well, yeah, maybe like from my mom or something, but the body of Christ, that's another story. No, like this is beautiful. When the word is dwelling in you, then you clearly see light from darkness, right? And when, and when you see light from darkness, you're easily, easily going to be able to see it in others. Okay, so we're able to admonish and teach when the word is dwelling in us. It's a powerful facet. And look what he adds here. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here's, here's what I'm learning. When the word is dwelling in you, what happens is, like, you sing it. That's what I love so much about Brandon. I love, love, love about Brandon. We sing God's word. That's his heart. Okay? Maybe you've noticed this about our song selection here and how we do worship here. But maybe you've noticed we don't sing songs where, like, Jesus is our boyfriend. Have you, have you seen that? We don't sing theologically weak songs that put, like, Jesus in a bassinet, right? And where he's, like, rubbing our shoulders, right? That's not the picture. We sing about King Jesus. We sing about a death and a resurrection. We sing about a risen Lord. We sing about the glory of Christ. Like, these are the songs that we sing. I, I love that. Why? Because when the word's in you, like, as David did, it just starts singing out. And so you find yourself not just singing Joy FM and getting caught by the person on the interstate, right? But you find yourself just randomly walking around your house with scriptures that you've memorized, and you just start singing them. Like all of a sudden, blessed be the name isn't just a, a chorus on a, on, a, on a thrifty song from the, you know, the mid-2000s. Now all of a sudden, it's God's word because you find out where it is. And on and on and on. Uh, let, me, let me contend to you this way. Um, maybe if you're not singing, maybe that's an indication that the, the word isn't richly planted in you. Because I just watched David's whole journey, and I was like, that dude sang some songs. I mean, he could, he, like, that dude just didn't shut up, right? Like, he's had to keep worshiping and keep singing. And then finally, we see this at the end of verse 16. I'll go back to verse 16, please. Okay? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and then this piece, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As the word takes root, builds a home, sets up permanent camp, then the outpouring of that is a consistent, persistent gratitude of what God's done. It's beautiful. But look, verse uh, 17 adds a whole new element, okay? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything, and if I had blanks here, and our, we didn't show the verse, and I was to ask you, what does it say? Most people would say, for the glory of God. Because that's how this verse is often misquoted. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. Have you ever heard that misquoted? Have you ever misquoted it like that? Okay, that's not what it says, even though that would be true. Here, it's in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Have, you, have some of you guys seen Gladiator? Okay. All right. It's a fairly uh, popular movie of the year 2000. And um, I want to tell you about a scene in it. If I was going to show up, but then I decided that beheadings wouldn't be good. Um, so there's this scene in the opening battle 
where Maximus is he's leading this whole army. And they're getting ready to potentially uh, fight a, a kind of a barbarian army. And so they, they send this, this representative to see if they wanted a fight or if they wanted peace. And so they're waiting on this guy to return on his horse. And for those of you that have seen the scene, what happens? He comes back on the horse, and what, what's happened? He's beheaded. Okay, and Maximus says something to the effect of they don't want peace, right? But this representative, this representative is sent out on horse. The king doesn't go out. He's, he's like an ambassador empowered by the king to try to negotiate or to represent the king. So to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus means that you and I accept the empowerment of Christ for the representation of Jesus in all facets of our life. We know that in everything and through everything and around every relationship and in every setting, that we are sent out from the king, empowered by the king, to be a voice and a life for the king's glory. Uh, the problem is sometimes when you represent the king, things don't go the way that you thought it would. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this in the red letters. Just listen to this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen to this. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Listen to this. But all these things they will do to you on account of my what does he say? Come on. On account of my name. You're associated with me. And so because you're associated with me, because you're empowered by me, because you represent me, and because they hated me, then they will hate you. Because they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now this would have definitely hit the home uh, of the disciples, who 10 of 11 were killed because of their faith. And so my guess is in the waning moments of their life before their martyrdom, as they thought through all the teachings of Jesus, and as they thought through, like Stephen, the glory of Christ, my guess is, is that one of the things they thought is, I represented Christ to this world, and this is what I got in return. Glory be to God. You see, I've always uh, saw this like, and whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. I've always saw this as like, a, as like a WWJD bracelet kind of thing. Right, where like everywhere I go, really what it's about is, is making sure I'm doing what Jesus would do. But now as I've come to understand this text, what I've come to understand is you are called, I am called, 
as an ambassador of Christ, empowered by Jesus, to in all facets represent him. So I just, I want to get very, very vulnerable and very, very real with you. How is that going? Empowered, sent, representing the one true king. How about that sphere of friends that it's the most difficult to do that in? What kind of language is used there? How about when you get around that particular group of friends and all of a sudden alcohol, you know, it's not, it's not all that bad anymore. You know, a little bit of drunkenness here with some close friends, it's all good. Oh, what about in that sphere of influence that you have at work? It's very, very easy for you just to coast on by and you live in that same office or in that same workplace for 20 years as a representative of the king and no one would know. Listen, let me make sure you understand this. It's one thing to be a Christian and it's another thing to represent the king. And right now, right, what what many of us are great at is we're great at being moral in immoral places. In holding our tongue, in not laughing at certain jokes, but I'm telling you, it's way different to represent the person of Christ and to see it as an honor, to see it as a blessing, than just to sit back and hold your tongue. Like all of a sudden now, this text for me, and whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus, like it has just... It's dwelling in me. And so I was literally today just like walking through my day, asking myself, how in that moment was I representative of Jesus? And would I be okay if I was sent back on the horse without a head? And that's where it stops for many of you, right? Listen, if there's going to be too many going against me, if there's going to be too much laughter, no. When it gets to that, I'm out. So this verse ends yet with another thankfulness, understanding, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. At the end of three powerful verses, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. And in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed. And at the end of all three, this understanding of gratitude. So I want to walk you through a little bit what I think the implications of these texts are. Let's just call it this. The thankful, number one. The thankful exude humility. Um... I don't know where my wife got the shirt, and we haven't talked about this, so please forgive me, Heidi. Um, My son walked in tonight with a, it was like a football shirt, and and on the shirt it said, future legend. And, you know, it's cute and it's nice, but I literally, in in my gut, I wanted to like take it and burn it. You know, and again, Heidi, I know you meant well, and maybe it was a gift from one of you, so if that was the case, please. Uh, (laughs) That came from Grandma, you know. 
but I, I, don't want my, I don't want my son in any facet or any regard to think that he's a future anything except a future, by God's grace, son of the Most High. I mean, if he's the greatest football player in the world, I would hope that it would be for the glory of Christ. I mean, my daughter right now, she's a very wise, smart girl, but I pray that all of her uh, reading levels and intelligence and all those things that she gets nowhere from me, I, I pray that that would be for the glory of Christ. The thankful exude humility. They're, they understand they're not building something on their own. One of the things that many of my pastor friends ask me all the time is, so how have you dealt with the growth of the church? For those of you that see the church in this form and setting, listen, uh, scoot back about five years, okay, we were about 125. And I can in all honesty for the entire staff, our, all of our elders, speak this plainly and truthfully. I literally, even to this day, and I shared it with a friend, I still do not feel deserved to communicate God's word. It's still such a humbling thing for me. People ask me all the time, like, why do you tear up so much up there when you start talking about the Lord? It's because I don't, I don't deserve his love. I don't, I don't deserve to communicate the powerful truth that he's allowed me to do that. It is humbling. It's not my right at all. It is a grace. The thankful exude humility. Gauge your hearts tonight, church. Apparently, thankfulness and gratitude was directly connected to the new man. The thankful, uh, we can say it this way. Next a slide. Oh, my goodness. They see the morsel and the buffet as grace. Man. When there's hardly anything to eat, they see that there's something, and they give thanks. And when there's plenty, they know it's come from the Lord. And they give thanks. In all seasons, in all facets, that's why scripture says, give thanks in all circumstances. I mean, this is one of the most difficult to allow the new man to be exuded in our life. Right? We're easy to give thanks on Thanksgiving Day, but it's really, really tough the next day when we're faced again with the reality of our circumstances. The thankful in all times and in all ways find their hearts solely resting in the person of Jesus. And they believe that's all they need. The thankful, let's say it this way. Next slide. Are driven to mission, not based, please see this, not based on what they do not have, but on what they do have. Here's what I'm saying. I've been to Rio de Janeiro on one of the most poverty hills in the entire world. 700,000 people live on this one hill. I was there on a mission trip in college. I saw poverty like crazy. We go to Ecuador, we see tremendous poverty. If mission is driven out of seeing what you don't have, that will be fleeting. Mission will be fleeting. Because compassion in and of itself, if it's not centered in the gospel, will just be a feeling, will just be an emotion, and many of you have seen that and felt that. You saw tremendous poverty, you came home, your lifestyle changed for a week, and then you were back to the American grind. You're out in the back painting your white picket fence. When mission is driven by what you do have in Christ, by the work of the Spirit in you, by the grace that's been extended to you, and when that's the thing, that to me is the heart of the grateful. 
Because everyone's situations will always be fluctuating and changing. In this city of St. Charles, please hear this, there is tremendous poverty. Tremendous poverty. May our mission in this city not be driven about what others have or don't have. May it be driven by what we have in Christ. The thankful, fourthly here, next slide, they see no reason to complain and grumble. Zero. They see no reason. Hey, seriously, what would a world look like if all the complaining and all the, all the grumbling and all the murmuring was just completely ixnayed from the body of Christ? Wouldn't it save us so much drama? Wouldn't it save us so much? We could actually focus on mission and less on uh, following our tracks from our lies and our gossip and our banter. The thankful, they just don't see, even see a need to complain. Again, it's different to admonish. It's different to speak the truth in love. But complaining and grumbling desires no action, isn't spoken out of love, uh, comes at everything with some kind of uh, uh, heretical or, or even, a, um, we could say, a very complacent kind of mentality. And finally, I love this. Um, the grateful, the thankful, they just enjoy worship, man. Sometimes with tears... Sometimes with like insane amounts of joy. But they just enjoy it. Because any time to proclaim the excellencies of him who's brought us out of darkness into marvelous light. Have you sang that song? It comes from God's word. Any chance to have that moment. Then all of a sudden the heart just erupts with the thought again of what he's done. So I got to the end of all this text. Seeing different things than I've ever seen before. And it's led me to finally ask what I've never asked before, one question. And I want to ask it to you now. Next slide. Are you thankful that you represent the Christ? Are you so thankful that you see it as an honor? Are you so thankful that it creates and breeds consistency? Are you, are you so thankful that you know to represent Christ, you're going to have to get to know his character if you're going to represent him. He's empowered you with his spirit. But this word is going to continually have to dwell in here so that you properly represent him somebody, right? Because there's a whole lot of people in the name of Jesus misappropriating the name of Christ. And that should fire you up. That should stir within you. Do you feel like tonight, my friends, that you are representing the person of Christ? So tonight, um, hmm. here's what was on my heart. I was like, I, I feel like there's a lot of things that come from this text. Where like all of a sudden, the body just needs prayer. And here's what's going to happen tonight. We've never, ever done this one time in our nearly 10 years. Every single person tonight that comes up for communion, which that means any believer, that's what communion is for. Any believer that comes up tonight is going to be prayed over by name. Prayed over by name. Now, how does that look and work? In a second, I'm going to ask my leaders to come up here. What you're going to do is you're going to come up to these tables. And on this Top line, you're going to write your first name. 
And underneath this, it says in a short phrase, what has God stirred in your heart in response to his word tonight that needs prayer in your life? Three, four words. And what you're going to do is you're going to go over to our male and female, our husband and wife leaders on both sides. And you're going to hold this card in front of them. And some of them may already know your name, but they won't know how to pray for you. And tonight, every single person, we're going to literally fill this entire room with prayer. We're in absolutely no hurry. As you, as you sign, uh, as you fill out the sheet of paper, then you can make your way past the tables and out both sides. We're in no hurry. Sit in your chair and process for a while. Come and respond. I'm going to invite my leaders now to come up and start preparing and getting ready. But all of us tonight, listen, we have this chance to respond to God's word and say, Lord, please do a work in my heart that makes me thankful that I represent you. Where I'm no longer ashamed. Where I no longer see it a burden. Where all of a sudden I see it as a tremendous blessing. So tonight as we respond, there will be some silence here. We're not going to rush into worship. We're just going to allow space and time tonight to permeate the room. Come up to these tables. Find one of the leaders. And let's enjoy an entire evening of prayer over the body of Christ. Respond when you're ready.